Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 202 for November 18th, 2020. I'm Chris Webster. On today's show, the crew tries to dispel some common misconceptions in CRM around budgets and seasonality. The CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 202 for November 18th, 2020. I'm Stephen and I'm filling in for Chris who couldn't be here as our host. Joining us today are Heather in California. Hi, everyone. And Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. He's on time. Today, it's early November, so winter just showed up for us here in Calgary, and uh, I'm sure it's, if it hasn't reached you yet, it's about to. So we thought we'd talk about seasonality and how it applies to CRM as a business. I know in the past, we've often had uh, episodes that discuss winterizing your career and, and stuff like that for uh, field techs and other archaeologists. But in this case, I think we were planning on talking about a little bit more about how that ties in with how basically the CRM companies do business and just kind of the seasonal nature of how the industry works. To kick it off, Heather was kind of interested in talking about just general basics as far as budgeting, because that, that does kind of apply in, in some ways. Heather, do you want to take that? Sure. You know, for me, the, the kind of the impetus behind talking about this topic was just, you know, watching, I, I enjoy watching all the channels, the social media accounts that, you know, a lot of technicians and CRM professionals at in any role are on. And a lot of times it makes me sad to see some of the conversations that that I see that really, you know, divides our practice as professionals and kind of has this concept of, you know, the the big man is trying to screw the little guy and that technicians are not respected. And, and in some ways, that is absolutely the case. I think it's more in a general sense. And I think that we as professionals need to be really careful to understand, you know, where maybe the unfairness lies and that many times it's not in the managerial staff. We should be looking critically, but not being critical <laughs> about certain topics without having a full you know, understanding. I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to billing rates, for instance, and why, you know, a billing rate is different than the hourly rate that the technician in the field 
receives. And I think that, you know, budgeting is really, it is a, it's a really complex, it's difficult. It's something that, you know, you have to have a lot of practice at to do well and to actually make money. And we have to remember that as technicians in the field, that, you know, without a company that is sound, is solvent and doing well, we're not going to have a job. So it is important that budgeting happen you know, the company has to make money or it's not going to be around for very much longer. So, and then we're not going to have a job. So I think it's important that people understand. And part of my reasoning behind this, you know, a portion of this conversation was to kind of just demystify the billing rate. So, you know, I think the going, the going rate or the going, what we call multiplier is in this field and, and really in any service field because the product that we provide our clients is a service. It's not, we're not selling a a desk or a computer. We are selling ourselves and our expertise. And so generally it's that triple multiplier. So let's say just to make math easy, somebody's making $25 an hour, a technician, Joe, the technician is making $35 an hour. He works for ABC CRM company. And that's ABC CRM company charges their client or bills Joe out at $75 an hour. And so, you know, a lot of times you hear, oh, you know, it's the, the big guy is, you know, making money off the backs of the technician. When in actuality, generally the profit margin, a company's lucky if they're getting 10%, which means, you know, rounded off to $8 out of that $75 that is Build to the client, the company is actually only making eight. And and that's actually considered a healthy, good profit margin. So when you think of it that way, and what why is that? Like where what else is kind of divvying and getting pulling of money out of that $75? So you have $75. Obviously, you you know, you have to pay Joe. So Joe's being paid $25. And not only is Joe getting paid $25 an hour, but if he is a full-time employee, he's getting paid significantly more than that, although that's not what he sees in his paycheck, but he gets he gets benefits. Uh, he has quite a few other benefits that are probably another 30% of that $25. So, you know, now you have, you know, upwards of you know, thirty-four bucks, thirty-five dollars that you are taking off the top of that seventy-five dollars. So now you're cut it almost in half, and then you have you know the cost of doing business that you cannot bill to your client. And once you do that, especially you have companies that at brick and mortar buildings, you have liability, you have unemployment insurance, you have quite a few other things that are taking out of that $75. You're lucky if you're getting $8 out of that 75 as a profit margin. So, you know, if you look at it that way, you realize that, you know, it isn't such a grotesque amount of money that the companies are making on your hourly billing rate. So, sure. We were talking before we started recording the show that I don't really care. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not my job. I, I don't do budgets. And from a certain perspective, what I'm getting paid is what I'm getting paid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, if that's the amount that they offered and I agreed to, then that's what I'm getting paid. And right. if I wanted more, it it's, has nothing to do with the budget, right? Like, 
you know, it's not like, oh, man, you know, the company's making 50 bucks off me an hour and blah, blah, blah. And it's like that that has that's completely irrelevant to what I'm actually getting paid. And if I wanted to get paid, I would ask for more money. Mm -hmm. Right. That's fair. In my mind. Like the the other thing is my other big point is I, I do care about budgets more from a time perspective. Like, you know, I, I run projects, I'm out in the field, I need to know that, like, you know, we, we're going to have enough money to do the project in a reasonable amount of time and, and not be shortchanged. Like, you know, here, here's a three-day project, but you only have the money to do it for one day. Right. And it's like, well, that's not going to work, right? Right. And And so for me, the budget is more like, so how long do I have, you know, do we have to be able to do this? Am I going to have to hire, you know, like an excavator with, you know, like mechanical equipment to do some stripping? Am I going to have to spend a lot of time in the office doing coordination with utilities and, and other interested parties? Am I, you know, like how, how how much time am I going to have to do like historical research or, you know, artifact analysis? Or, you know, like I think of it in terms of person hours right. more than, you know, dollars. So I'm curious, Stephen, are you the one who actually writes the proposals and figures out the budget or are you provided a job and said, this is the amount that you have to do it within? Generally the latter, okay. but sometimes the former. Okay. Sometimes, particularly for excavation, like if, if I go out there on a survey and I find a site, you know, I've been there. I've seen it. I have an idea of what the site is. I have an idea of what the, you know, I, I want the research design to be like. And I'm sometimes then consulted as to, so what do you think? How, how many days do you think this is going to take? How many people, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. In cases of like survey, I don't necessarily have that level of input sometimes. Right. But I do think, particularly after this year, I had a few projects and, and I've been thinking about kind of self-assessing what my thoughts were of how long this was going to take versus how long it's actually taking. And mm-hmm. how could I, you know, is, is, it, is there a possibility of front-ending, like, the recommendations of how long things are going to take? Like, how can we better, mm-hmm. you know, have a more accurate picture of what things are going to take? Yep. Yeah, so, so my thought has been more along the lines of, like, you know, well, if we look at, like, soils data and, and you know, like, kind of a strongly data-driven approach, like, look at what other work's been done in the area and see if we can't figure out how long that took with how many people. Like, look at the reports, have have an idea, and and try to wrap that into like like a smarter proposal, basically. Right. For me, I, th- I think maybe it's helpful to kind of go through just the thought process of when you're writing a re- proposal, which does you know lead into the idea of seasonality. And you know, first you have to look at you have a company a client that comes to you. And you have different types of proposals. We have proposals that are what I would consider or call a sole source proposal, which means the client is your client. They trust you. They want to work with you. They come to you to say, okay, I need this done. How much is it going to cost? And you generally know that client. You know who, you know how much kickback they're going to give you for, they don't come to you and say, I want it to cost this because they're just like oblivious. They have no idea how long, how much it's supposed to cost. So, but then you also have those competitive bids where you're really trying to win the bid. And sometimes there's certain 
considerations you need to take where you would call it maybe it's a competitive bid. You're buying a job, even though they're paying you, you're willing to take a bit of a hit so that it, on your profit margin so that you can establish a relationship with a client that you really do want to have long term, not just for this project, but long term. And so, you know, that a lot of times your profit margin is going to be smaller. And in my opinion, the way I do business, that profit margin does not come off the backs of the technicians. The technicians get paid what they get paid, period, especially on a practical sense, you're opening yourself up to liability if, if you do it any other way than that. So, you know, as far as labor laws and, and such. So, you know, when you're looking at a proposal, you do have to, it's more than just like you're saying, yeah, there's considerations of how many people. And I think that's a really good question for me. I have formulas that I have in my head as far as a survey. How many, how many acres can one person do in a day? But you can't just look at it. You also have to consider terrain. You have to consider how far away, how remote is that project location? All those things need to be considered. And if you're not everybody's good at writing proposals. And if you're writing a proposal and you're not considering all the different (laughs) things that are going to cost money, it ends up, you know, very stressful for the person who actually has to enact that budget and keep within the budget. And so, you know, they're just like you said, you know, you have to think, am I going to have to pay an excavator and all those, those things are things that need to be thought of way ahead of time before you even submit the budget. You have to think about I anticipate every single thing that's going to cost money so you can incorporate it into the budget so that later on down the road, you are not bound to a contract that you can't fulfill without losing money. So, you know, as far as another thing to consider is that, you know, it's not just people. And and I wish, you know, people understood that it's just not, I need five people. We have to think about who are those people? Is it you know, one crew supervisor and four technicians. Do I need two crew supervisors? Because I'm going to have two separate areas that I need. And then I have technicians under them. Because why? Because the crew supervisor is likely going to have a different billing rate or a different hourly pay than somebody who's a technician. They're going to get paid more. So now if that they're going to get paid more, then I need to consider that it's not just straight across the board, five people at $60 an hour. I have to consider that I might have some at $90 an hour. And that's where people start losing their budget is when they only apply just this roundabout and need five people at 60 an hour. And I'm just giving, you know, general terms. Sure. And then next thing you know, they don't have five people at 60 an hour. They need somebody at 90 an hour. And now all of a sudden you're eating into your profit and the budget just goes down from there. (laughs) And, you know, these are things that I just don't think, unless you've had to do it yourself, that you're going to understand all the nuances behind a proposal and why you see managers of a project sweating bullets in the middle of a, (laughs) in the middle of a survey going, crap, I've already gone through my entire budget. And we're only 75% done with the acreage that we have to do. And it's, you know, that's where it comes from. It's from not having built that proposal on the front end correctly. And I just think it's helpful for people to have that perspective. Sure. Yeah. And when you do this, thinking about like the seasonality, because I'm looking outside and I literally just finished a field project on Friday and the weather was nice. And then uh, basically winter storm has blown in over the weekend. So like I totally just got by by the skin of my teeth in this one. 
but you know like do you take into account like seasonal weather like if if it's cold people are going to be moving slowly if it if it's yeah like a lot of really heavy rains you know like the work goes slowly right so is that a factor Absolutely. It's a factor. It's especially a factor. We have some projects that are fairly remote and are likely going to have rain. So now you have people that, let's say you have an agreement, you have already told your technicians, they're not going to get paid unless they're actually working. So let's say we have a rain day, we cannot work. So we have a rain day, we can't work. We're not going to pay you your hourly wage, but we are going to take care of your uh, hotel per diem, which any good company should be doing that. You can't, strand somebody out in the middle of nowhere and then not be paying their hotel when you have a rain day. I mean, it's just not right. So those are all things absolutely you have to consider. And then also you have to consider, you know, there are some companies, you know, if, if at all possible, I do try to give somebody like a half a day of work because it's hard. I mean, they're stuck out there where they could have been working another another job. And there are some projects where you do have that ability to even pay them for the full day, as long as it doesn't extend too long. But, you know, a lot of that obviously is is affected by whether it's a sole source or a competitive bid and the ability of the person who actually wrote the proposal to really have that foresight. Not everybody does. And that's where you get into situations where you're asking technicians to do, or not me, but some companies are saying, hey, you know, it's, I don't want to be the one that's on the hook for having a lower profit margin, which is small to begin with anyway. So you start encouraging your technicians to do things that are just not fair, you know, and that's where I think technicians need to really decide if you don't like how a a business is, is treating you and then you just don't work for them anymore. I mean, they get the message that way. And hopefully you can find a company that does offer you what you want. Yeah, I, I think there's a ton of companies that are very fair out there. You just have to look for them. I mean, just like any job, you know, not always going to get the perfect job. In fact, very few people stumble across an awesome job opportunity in any field and work right off the bat. You know, that's just not practical to think that you're going to get that. So, you know, you learn, you learn is called, you know, what the, the hard knocks of life, right? Sure. You learn what to look for next time around. On that note, I think we'll end this first segment and go to a break and come back and talk maybe a little bit more about budgets, but maybe a little bit about uh, seasonality. Back after the break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, Episode 202. We spent pretty much most of the first segment talking about budgeting and and the like, and, and expectations and planning. But for this segment, I think we're going to segue into talk about seasonality because it's, it's that time of the year. And, and if you're not already hunkering down for the winter, you're probably thinking about it. And and I, I just wanted to start part of where this conversation started when we were just chatting before the recording started. I really appreciate the cyclical nature of the seasons as far as work goes. I you know, I enjoy field work, I enjoy office work, I enjoy lab work, but I don't necessarily want to do any of one of those things full time. And and so right about the time that I'm starting to, you know, get feel really beat up from doing all that field work, winter comes and I end up doing a lot of report writing and artifact analysis and, and maybe some cataloging. And then, you know, just when you start getting a little stir crazy in the spring, Field season kicks back in, and you're out out in the field again, and it makes for a nice, just kind of a process of keeping it fresh. At least it works that way for me. I, I know that some places uh, don't necessarily have that. When I worked in Georgia, there, there were dedicated field field teams and lab teams, and you know, yeah, you, some people would go back and forth, but for the most part, they were pretty dedicated. So this. This doesn't. The seasonality thing doesn't necessarily apply to everybody in you know, who who might be listening to this episode, but I think that it, it is a consideration for a lot of us. Heather, you you were talking about how even California has like a seasonal cycle. Sure, it does. I'm I'm actually kind of curious, and I, I mean, I'll I'll respond to that, and then I do have a question for you. So yeah, I mean, obviously we don't have snow. Well, we do in some areas, but generally in the areas that I work in, we don't have that aspect of snow where, you know, you you have a, a very hard ground and you really can't excavate. But we do get a lot of rain here. And I've had projects where you, it does not matter what's happening. You're working through whatever comes your way weather-wise, unless for some reason it's unsafe. Like you have extreme, extreme heat or if you have a lightning storm or something like that, which actually doesn't happen all that often in California, but those types of things where it wouldn't be safe, then of course that would curtail work. But generally, you know, I think it depends on the project, how much, and the crew, you know, the person who's managing the project, how much weather affects. And for me, it's not as much of a season where, okay, now I'm doing field work and now I'm doing lab work. That and that leads to my question for you. For us in in CRM, or at least my experience in CRM in in this area, is that you know we we have to turn around. We we do our field work. We have to turn it around. Our clients don't wait for us to wait until the lab work later on. They need a complete report in order to move forward with their project. And so we don't have the luxury of doing that field work and then maybe hopping to another project and doing that field work and then having maybe an actual season quote unquote season of lab work. And so 
is the nature of what you do allow you to do that? Or that's just what you, what you focus on and you have other people that are writing reports. You just happen to, during certain times of the year, do more report writing than you would in other times of year. No, that, that's a great question. No, like particularly for survey and, and stuff like that, like the, the short, you know, run out, few days doing field work, we usually turn out a report pretty quickly after that. So I, I guess I was kind of overgeneralizing. Mm. In, in the summer, we do like there's like a you go out in, into the field, work on a project, go back, write it up, submit the report, go back out in the field for a different project, come back, write the report. And you know, depending on the schedules and, and the workload that, that needs to get done, you could be, you know, going from like one field project to another field project to another field project and then coming back and writing all those up at once. Got it. That, that sort of thing. But there is a certain amount, uh, particularly for mitigation and, and excavation, because those require that much more lab time. Sure. Um, a lot of times those get put off into the winter unless there's something in the client's timeline that, you know, doesn't allow for. Yeah, that that's interesting because at least, see, in California now, I'm seeing it more and more where agencies that, you know, the ones that actually are the ones that are employing the mitigation measures or making sure that the mitigation measures are followed or the ones that are actually writing the mitigation measures are now including caveats that clients are not allowed to have an occupancy permit or any kind of permit that allows them to move forward with the project until the mitigation measures are complete, the report is turned in, and if it's an excavation of data recovery, that everything is curated according to the conditions of the of the project. And so, you know, I've seen it increase that in that in the last few years. And the reason is because, you know, like we all know, <laughs> people do the field work, they will do maybe the analysis, but they are really poor about writing it up. And so, you know, agencies and I think tribal members were really, you know, starting to see how people are not following through and doing what they're supposed to be doing as far as the actual report, which is the purpose of doing the data recovery, that we actually have data in the end that is now there for others to look at and for us to learn about the prehistory of the area. And so I think they've started getting wise to that, and now they write that in the mitigation measures. So now that that even makes it more difficult, which you know has definitely changed how we look at a project schedule. So I think you're right. I mean, or I shouldn't say I think you're right. You're doing what you're doing, but in this area, <laughs> it used to be that you would excavate. And then you would do, you know, you sand the lab work out and then you would write the report when you had an opportunity. It was a luxury to be able to sit down and really take your time writing a report. And now you don't have a choice. Like you have to get it done in a certain period of time because, right, you know, you have the your client tapping their fingers on the desk waiting for it because until they have it, they can't move forward. And because we're we're kind of the last thing that's done, you know, it has to happen quick. So... Yeah, well, and, and being the last thing to get done, I always joke that we're just we're nothing more than like really slow utility locators. Yeah, you know, we're going to sweep <laughs> the area, to tell you if it's okay. Oh, oh, you want want to dig there anyway? Well, we're gonna, then we're going to have to move it. So now we have to get all the agreements in place, and yeah, it doesn't quite work that way. First, because Alberta, you know, we we get archaeology permits to do field work, right? And in the permit, it's stipulated that you have to have to do a report and, and you have a timeline to do it. 
and it's pretty standard for for all the projects, all the permits. And so like not doing a report isn't a possibility. If you don't do a report, you're never getting another project. Yeah. That's what I wish it was that way. Which makes your employability really poor. <laughs> it really should. We should adopt something like that. I mean, we have something like that for ARPA permits. You know, when you're working on, you know, state parks, land, national parks, land, you have to do some, you have to have a permit before you do the BLM, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But in general, we don't have that. I, I think that's an excellent way to go. So to go back earlier in, in, you know, what you were talking about, they don't get to start the project until they have approval from the Historical Resources Management Branch, which is the government, the Alberta government agency. So just because, you know, we finished the field work, if we haven't done a report yet, they don't get their approval. So the the cases where I'm talking about like, okay, now, now we can do our lab work. It, those are cases where the projected start date for those projects aren't until, in, in this case, it'd be like you know, later 2021 or 2022. So by their timeline, we have plenty of time to get it together and get the report submitted. That's great. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes, you know, sometimes by the time they call us to do the work, they already have the trucks running. And, and it's like, well... Yeah, when did you want clearance by? Because you're not getting it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we do have people in the lab, you know, in the summer, you know, knocking knocking stuff out because we got to get moving on that report. There is a thing here uh, where they do allow interim reports in certain circumstances, which are very much like for a quicker turnaround. So the artifact analysis isn't quite as deep. It's usually just like uh, mass and counts of the artifacts and, and, you know, with, with a very kind of surficial analysis of the site and stuff like that. Usually though, that's at least in my experience, from what I've seen, that's usually used when you want to do more work. And so you want more requirements and, and you don't want to wait until like the the full analysis is done uh, before, you know, saying like, okay, now we'd like to do more work. Usually the interims used to like, kind of expedite the, like, we really want to do more work. And, and so we need new requirements from the province. But, you know, time's a factor. So we're, we're going to do it as quickly as possible, you know, within that that framework. I'm curious for people in Canada, and, you know, probably it's, it's the same in the U.S. as well, as far as people that are as needed technicians. Do people just go and find another job? You know, in California, you can keep pretty busy as an as needed and just, you know, kind of hop around from with a few companies and stay fairly busy. So, you know, in an area where you really don't have a choice, you can't excavate or you can't do surveys because of the snow or frozen ground. Do people generally just go find another? Some people say they go south. But then you have to establish that you really know you have a regional expertise, you have a regional knowledge, and you, you know, it's it's difficult to do that to work in the north and then go and, as they say, fly south. I I think some people are successful in that, but that's certainly not going to be for somebody that's coming out of college, that are, is looking for a job, or or even for people that, you know, just the average person doesn't have the the luxury of just you know packing up and and leaving for a few months and. 
obviously that is part the nature of our business, you know, but, you know, in California really do appreciate technicians that have a lot of experience in the area. So, you know, I'm not as open to just having somebody who comes in that's never worked in the area before and you have to start somewhere. So, you know, generally in Canada, what do you, what do you folks do when the season of digging is done? What is your percentage of people that, that would continue to to have work let's say in the lab well well first like that you know uh, time i worked in georgia that i was talking about earlier that's exactly what it was it was a snowbird job i got hired drove through a blizzard on, on january 1st moved to georgia and did a project until the spring and then left that project and went back back up north to the midwest so as far as the requirements go yeah theoretically you need you need a certain level of expertise, but at the field tech level, which I was at the time, because this was back in the 20th century, <laughs> I, you know, like I basically, I just needed to be able to identify, know what a flake looks like, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't have to know the, the full chronology so much as like, would I recognize an artifact if I saw one? Right. And, and you know, they just wanted warm bodies. Yeah. I, so I got in on that. Here, I don't see a lot of people moving around. And I always find this really interesting. I feel like part of it is because like uh, it's it's not a national system, CRM. In, in Canada, it's very provincial. Like I think there is like a federal law, but I think it basically says that each province shall have a provincial law <laughs> sort of thing, right? Like, right. And, and so like the methods of what happens and what you're qualified to do greatly varies between the provinces. Saskatchewan and, and Alberta are pretty similar. And and I have done some work in Saskatchewan and, and Ontario as field assistants. I haven't actually run any project. Nope, Saskatchewan I did. I did run one project there. But I, I don't see people snowboarding. I mean, one, it's Canada. There's not a lot of places for them to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like... <laughs> BC, maybe. Yeah. There is some winter work that, that happens. Like sometimes you do get called out for a very miserable winter job, you know, because it has to happen. It has to happen now. And and those are, you know, the, the heated tent and uh, the heating pads that saw the ground and, and crap like that. And and they are very expensive um, for the client. <laughs> yeah, right. I can imagine. And, and, you know, like I've never heard a whole lot of happiness for people who have worked on those projects. Uh, I've never actually done one myself because I've only been working in Canada for six years now. So a lot of the winter work that tends to get done is is lab work, finishing up uh, like final artifact analysis and stuff like that for for technicians. And yeah, we we don't keep them all on. And so I I think that a lot of them end up pulling uh, employment insurance, basically unemployment for, for the winter. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe they've got like a winter side gig job that they do, or I don't know. I think, I think it, it varies. And the the goal is to get a full-time job, right? You know, that's the goal everywhere, right? Like, uh, you know, have a permanent job and, you know, some people, if they don't get one, you know, eventually they just drop out because, you know, they, I mean, it's, it's a really hard lifestyle to, sure. to, to live in the long term. In the Mountain West, you end up with a lot of, at least at the field tech level, people going into sort of winter activity, seasonal winter stuff. So all the ski slopes slash snowboard yeah. slopes <laughs> open up 
And so you end up with a lot of people who, as archaeology ends, they then move into the other seasonal job that they have. And some people can make that work quite well, where they just alternate. You know, there's there's a couple of winter-based jobs, seasonal jobs that happen to work really well with archaeology because, you know, as soon as the snow disappears, archaeology can pick up again. And as soon as the snow gets there, the uh, winter jobs pick up. So, yeah, I mean, there's other stuff, uh, skiing, you know, snowboarding, uh, bits of other sort of wintry stuff, ice skating, all that sort of stuff. So I've known quite a few people that have been fairly successful doing that. Definitely. It takes a certain personality (laughs) to be okay with that. That's why I think archaeologists are peculiar personality wise as a whole, just like any, you know, if you think of a seasonal type of job or just like you're saying, even, you know, I've had a lot of friends that are, that do a lot of that, you know, they're ski bums or ski instructors or, you know, working in ski resorts. And they definitely are very similar personality wise. You have to be willing to kind of go with that flow and not have that certainty in front of you. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's go to a break and we'll come back and have further discussion about seasonality. Back in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to CRM Archaeology Podcast, Episode 202. We've been talking about both budgets and seasonality. So I kind of want to, like, twist those threads together a little bit. Recently on a field project, I was driving to the project site with one of my bosses and we were discussing this whole seasonality thing and about how, you know, in in some places where it's warm, you don't necessarily have like that level of seasonal downtime. And so, you know, just work just keeps going, right? Like you you work through the winter, you you know, the lab staff's always on. You basically have permanent lab staff or permanent as long as they're projects and it it just keeps going and and that brought up a really interesting thought between us which was do southern crm firms make more money like is it a more viable business model to to do crm in warmer climates because you don't you don't have to stop you just keep going so i thought i'd bring this up because it addresses both you know basically both of what we've already been talking about. Anybody want to try to feel this? I think it's probably uh, highly off, speculative. Yeah, off the top of my head, uh, I would say it doesn't pass the gut check just because, so in, if we're talking just USA here, all the CRM firms are quite small. Mm-hmm. And one could make the argument 
that the bigger ones are in the south, but mainly it's the southwest. So unless you're like part of an organization that's been bought out by a bigger environmental consultancy firm, engineering, you know, something like that, some sort of organization that can like then have jobs all across the country and, you know, basically have a, a bit of a scale factor to them. For the most part, you, you would expect by now, you know, CRM has effectively been going for almost 50 years, you know, 1970s, essentially. So if, if it was a huge advantage, we would have seen by now that actually we'd have, you know, a thousand strong archaeology firms and we would have, you know, maybe just a couple and they would dominate everything. Or they would have, you would have got people who could then buy out firms from the south upwards. So buying out people in, you know, I don't know, maybe you're based in Texas and you, you buy out everyone heading up from Oklahoma and all the way up to the Dakotas and whatnot. Well, don't we see that? I mean, when I think about large CRM firms and... and Are there large CRM firms? Pure CRM firm. Isn't Twitter? No, that's, uh, that's an environmental firm. They do more than, way more than. Didn't they start as a CRM firm, though? I do not know. But I know that they do more than CRM. Because I, I thought they had. Yeah, maybe. Who, who's this? I missed the... Uh, uh, SWCA. Yeah, they're environmental. The largest, what used, to, well, I don't know if they still are. It was SRI was the largest CRM, primarily CRM, starting out as a CRM company. And they had maybe 100 people, give or take, on anything. So, I mean, I just... But I feel like these are, you know, like when you talk about like the larger firms and, and granted for CRM, you know, that means like more than 15 people, right? But like when you talk about the larger firms, I think of companies coming out of California and the Southwest and, and yeah, there, there are still small firms there, but... Yeah, but uh, that has more to do with where the work is. Just, I mean, you know... Everything west of the Mississippi has massive amounts of government land, which results in a lot bigger projects, a lot more archaeology. And that's not to, you know, there's still lots that happens on the east and, you know, north, northeast and stuff like that. But, you know, you see it with wages. Wages are better out west because there's more work. Mm -hmm. I think what you're seeing with that is basically, that's why I was saying like, you know, southwest, or west or stuff like that. Yeah, there's the the South, but like you're not seeing companies coming out of say Alabama or Florida or Georgia or someplace like that, that you can mostly do CRM all year round, sort of coming out and dominating. They're not that big of firms. Again, if we're talking pure CRM only, not, you know, environmental firms mm -hmm. or people that have been bought by environmental firms or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. The, the, the ones in, from the Southeast that come to mind like PCI, Pan American Consulting. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that are they still a thing? <laughs> I haven't really kept track. Yeah. I just looked up SWCA, which from my understanding is people that work for SWCA hate it when they are called SWICA. I got, I learned that yeah, the hard way, <laughs> but I just looked it up and it was started by Dr. Stephen Carruthers and he Started, it was a small ecological research firm, but he was an aquatic and terrestrial biologist, so not an archaeologist. So, yeah, I, I mean, the the smaller firms have, 
you know, spe- at least in in the area that I'm in, you know, the we have some really you know it's smaller firms that focus primarily on you know government work or work that requires DBE that requires a certain percentage of you know uh, disadvantaged uh, businesses be on on the payroll for certain projects and so you know a lot of times those smaller projects or those smaller companies get relegated to projects that larger companies would be completely you know kind of nixed out of because they're not a uh, DBE unless the the larger company has them on you know as a subconsultant and so you know you do i think you've gotten at least in this area you've gotten you know certain except for the small you know the meat and potato local projects phase ones and uh, smaller phase ones for development that kind of thing but generally the the smaller CRM firms are doing either as a subconsultant for a larger firm or they're you know doing work that they have a you know a better chance of of winning because of the the DBE requirement and or you know you have smaller companies that are just you know very boutique very focused on doing very high quality work and not that everybody shouldn't be aimed at doing that they should but there are some that have really you know I can think of a few in this in the California area one being far western that you know they're known for you know excellent excellent work and because of that they've carved out a niche for themselves of doing you know very good research and so they get work just based on that but I don't think that just because of the type of work that we do, you're not going to find really large, I guess what you would conglomerate, you know, type of companies that are solely archaeology, solely cultural. Those larger firms are always going to be a group of consultants and that have a, a good combination of, you know, knowledge of regulatory lo- knowledge along with the pure archaeology that is necessary. I also don't see how you could have a mechanism for what we're describing, you know, being able to work, you know, keep your staff on year round as actually creating a commercial advantage, which is a shame. But I I mean, if you think about it, like field techs and, you know, we're not like our projects are not judged on quality. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to get the, the, a bare minimum. It has to like, look good enough to pass, you know, muster with your SHPO or, you know, whatever regulatory, you know, whatever department who's the, you know, primary people on it. So, you you know, maybe it's BLM, Forest Service, state something, you know, whatever. You basically just have to produce something that looks good enough. And, and that's the shame about it is it's like there's no mechanism, market mechanism for punishing organizations who maybe miss a bit of stuff. So like, let's say you're out on a, a site and you miss a hearth, which if you had, say, a very skilled field tech and I don't want, I mean, we should definitely throw it out there that like a skilled field tech is so much better than someone who's just like tossed out there and they'll find so much more and they'll be able to excavate so much more and and be better. But if you miss that hearth, no one's going to know. No one, there's no one there to check. We don't have, you know, you don't have any sort of oversight. Occasionally you might have someone pop out to a site from, you know, 
the overview. So maybe it's a BLM archaeologist who sort of wants to see what's going on. And, but they're not there every day. They're not there, you know, double checking and seeing for quality. And so you basically, you could just hire in and I don't say you could, it, it happens. You basically can just hire in new seasonal people every year. And it's not, there's no mechanism with how CRM is set up to give you a disadvantage for doing that. I don't see a mechanism where it'd be great if, you know, for those places to keep their staff on, you know, build up that experience and, and, you know, keeping a team together, you know, a good team that's worked on projects for months or years at a time will be so much more efficient and so much better. But again, you don't need to like, you know, if you're doing a pedestrian survey and you miss a site, it happens, but there's not going to be any repercussions for you doing that. And so you could basically just hire in new staff every every season. And they may not be the best, but they're good enough. And so I, I don't see there being any commercial advantage for having I mean, there's a, a person advantage and there's a you know, being a good human being and keeping someone on for year after year without having them to have the stress of trying to find the next job. I mean, that, that's a great thing, but there's not going to, that's not going to give you a commercial advantage how we have the system set up now. I, I actually think, I mean, from a, from, from the perspective of somebody who does hiring and in an area that does have work all the time. So, you know, maybe that needs to be at least, you know, acknowledged, but, you know, I have found over time that having a regular set of people that you have trained a very particular way and that you know what you're getting is a lot more pound wise rather than penny foolish. <laughs> I guess I try to switch that phrase around, but it's, I think, you know, hiring new people all the time is for every project is penny wise, pound foolish, because you never know what you're going to get unless you get lucky that, you know, people that you know are available every time you call them, which if they're good at what they're doing, they're probably not going to be regularly. So, you know, I actually think that we have gone as a company have gone to more having a, a larger full-time staff so that, and obviously it's easier to float that when you're a larger company. We're not huge, we're 600, but that's all consultants, not just, you know, archaeology and that's 600 full-time. You know, it's so much better. You're going to get so much, there are, you know, good technicians that, you know, we can get for three people, for th three new people, one person can do the work of three because they're more efficient and they know they know what they're doing and they're, they're just they're just more efficient all around. And so, you know, I actually think that having full time staff that you can count on it's a lazy way to do business to just start over all the time. And as a manager, I don't like having to scramble all the time for a crew. You know, I like being able to have people at my disposal. And also, you know, if you can't find people, there goes your budget because now you're reaching, you know, if I have a crew of people um, for the company that across the board, I have, you know, certain people in all different regions, then I have people I can count on rather than having to pay all these expenses. You know, when you can't find people, you start getting desperate and you start pulling in from from places that now are requiring you to have expenses that you had not budgeted for. So I think a company is much smarter to have at least a good core group of full-time employees they can rely on. 
Sure. Oh, I definitely agree with that. I, I think the reasoning for my initial question, though, is that if you know we don't maintain the staff over the winter that we do in the summer, if we can maintain summer levels of employment because the business, as I understand it, again, I, I don't do a budget, right? So um, as I understand it, you bill by the hour by, you know, by person hours, right? Like, you know, we have so many billable hours at this level. We have so many at, you know, like supervisory level. We have so many at like the GIS tech level, you know, whatever the categories are as part of the budget. And so if you maintain greater billing, that's what brings in more money as far as profitability goes. So at least in my head, that that's how this process works. So the idea is if we could maintain basically summer levels of work, would, wouldn't it be more financially beneficial to the CRM firm than if you couldn't? Not necessarily. So like... What you what Heather has been describing is really good risk management. So in the sense that, you know, having as everything that Heather's brought up, you know, having the staff there, not having to worry about bringing in people, the costs associated with that, all sorts of things like that. Also, when you have a dependable staff, you know that like the chances of a project going sideways is reduced. There's less surprise, or if there is surprise, you have a staff that is experienced enough that can handle any surprise and won't sink your company because, you know, you've already blown through your budget and you still have 50% of the project to, to go. That will do that, but... Okay, but this isn't addressing my question. Well, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, there is no barrier to entry in most places and so, yeah, let's say a company does screw up and, you know, because they didn't have good staff and they go bankrupt. Well, there's going to be like six other companies that are going to suddenly pop out of nowhere and be there to take that work. And just because you can also, this sort of goes back, is like there's only a finite amount of work for CRM. So even being able to work all year round doesn't mean there's going to be work for you. So, you know, like we're talking about, like there are places that you can work during the winter. Doesn't mean that there is always work there during the winter. I mean, construction goes on a sort of cyclical nature and it could be by regions or, you know, big project comes through, that's great. And then there's nothing for like two or three years. I mean, not nothing, but you're not able to maintain those levels of staff that you would hope for during that time. And so... Yeah, it's nice to being able to keep your staff around all the time, but doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be work for them. And it also means that if you're keeping all your staff around, everyone else, I mean, if we're talking about weather being the main factor here, everyone else that you're competing against can also keep their staff around the whole time. And that means everyone's basically trying to keep staff around, you know, 365 days a year on a finite resource. And that's tough. I see lots of advantages to being able to keep around staff, but one of those being that you're going to make more money and be able to, you know, dominate the CRM sector is not one of them. Okay. That's about all the time we have. So we'll just end on that note. Goodbye. <gasps> Aren't you supposed to wait, Doug? Uh, you know, I mix it up sometimes. 
<laughs> sometimes it's Doug hurt. doesn't wait for sometimes. anybody but Chris. I feel, yeah, I feel special that you did that. <laughs> Doug. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes you feel, I do a safe, you feel safe with us. <laughs> I do. I do. You, you guys are. I, I feel safe enough to go early. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Hear me, Doug. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Doug. Oh, no, I already said it, guys. I, I, <laughs> you can say was, it more than like one. two minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, well, you can say it again. You were saying no. goodbye to our audience. Can you say goodbye to us? <laughs> hey, guys, guys, this is like, there's only one yes. bye. Yeah. It's either like okay. really late, Take really your early. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't care about Chris us. Have only to. the audience I- matters. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Yeah, he's either going to have to edit this out or edit it in or cut it and move it around or just get in our whole like two minutes of us just talking. This will just be the whole third segment. There you go. Fourth segment. (laughs) The the bonus goodbye segment. The encore encore that no one asked for. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, bye all. Bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.